You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today as we talk about the show that everyone seems to be watching and chatting about around their dinner table, HBO's The Last of Us. The series is based on the massive video game of the same title and follows characters as they navigate a world trying to survive an outbreak that turns infected into monsters intent on killing everything in sight. But what separates The Last of Us from other clashes of the undead is that The Clash of the Undead is not the featured attraction, but an added benefit. The character development is what's front and center, and the action sequences serve to teach us new things about Joel and Ellie as they work their way across the country. In one episode, a character, Frank, says paying attention to things is how we show love. Well, the sound team must have loved it because the detail in this series is eminently impressive. Every scene is filled with audio details that make the moments stick. Joining us today is supervising sound editor Michael Benevente and Chris Battaglia. They're both with me in person at Formosa Group in Hollywood on stage two. Michael Benevente is the supervising sound editor. It's nice to meet you, Michael. How are you today? I'm good and glad to be here. Thank you. Nice to meet you. And Chris Battaglia is a sound designer on The Last of Us. Thanks for joining us, Chris. It's nice to finally meet you. Yeah, nice to finally meet you too. So this show, as I mentioned in the intro, has become like a worldwide phenomenon. It's something that everyone is talking about right now. The podcast, uh, Tone Bender, sent out a tweet asking if anybody had any questions for you. And we found that the answers, the responses we got were global. They're from all around the world. So I thought that maybe I'd uh, use some of their questions to kind of frame this interview. The first one, I think, is kind of an obvious one uh, from two Daniels, one in Cambridge, UK, and one in Denmark. Uh, What kind of conversation did you have with the audio team from the game before you started working on this? It was, at least on my end, it was pretty minimal, but you had some experience with them, Chris. Yeah, I I have some some friends who were actually worked on The Last of Us 2 and some friends who worked on The Last of Us 1. So I, I had a lot of conversations with them about the game. Um, about the world and about their intent and, and and about the infected and about, you know, just just everything that really went into the game and how they brought it to life. And then I was able to interpret that and, and, and translate it into try and make it uh, work cinematically for television. It was actually a lot of conversations mainly about making sure that the world is worn and rusted and decayed and that the ambiences and, and the doors and the just everything in the effects really reflected that. And then on the affected side, it was mainly Krister Hoon who designed those. He had a bunch of conversations with them and big shout outs to Jesse Garcia and Bo Jimenez and Phil Kovats who really steered us into being able to translate that. And, and something you had said in your introduction, you used the term monster and you just used the term infected. And that was kind of monster was really wrong. That was the... He's trying to stay well, away no, from no, the word zombie. The, <laughs> I was told I couldn't use the word yeah, yeah, zombie. Oh, no, but, but Craig Mason, <laughs> you know, the creator of the show, the wonderful, talented creator of the show, he, you know, sort of let us know early on when we weren't quite going the right direction. Sometimes these are human beings who are infected. So that's why they... And they really... It all stems from them struggling to breathe. You know, the cordyceps go into their lungs and then their brains. And we had to make them sound human. I have mild asthma and, and my wife has very bad asthma. And I know what that sounds like when you're having a really bad asthma attack. And that's what I kept thinking we should kind of go that direction. These are not supernatural creatures. Uh, these are human beings who are sick. And so that's why we tried to keep them as human sounding as possible. So, well, let's explore that further. The sounds of the infected. It sounds very similar to the game. Right. But it's not 
the same sounds as the game. Is that correct? Yeah. Phil and Misty, the two actors who did most of the clicker voices, I believe, I wasn't there for the game, came in and we recorded them on an ADR stage and we had them watch scenes. Craig gave them direction to try things differently. And then Chris Terhoon had a kit with their voices, as well as, you know, Craig did some clicker type voices. Chris did some clicker type voices. I'm not sure if you did or not, but... As far as the clickers, we knew that there were legions of fans who knew that sound. And if we were slightly off, we'd get shit. <laughs> so, but we still had to remain cinematic. This is a different medium than when you would play a video game with. So we basically tried to stay true to that sound so that the audience wouldn't say, well, that's not right. And they haven't. They really love the sound of that. That sequence in the museum with the clickers is one of the most things I'm most proud of that I've done because it just really, I, I watch it over and over. You know, I have a nice little Atmos thing at home and I love it there. I watched it in my editing room here. And uh, it's just really, really clever and makes me proud. <laughs> Yeah, I think the big thing was the intent of that game and how translating that, too. So it's like making sure that, as Michael was saying, just making sure that those sounds were really authentic and honoring that game. And those game sounds are so visceral and they really affected me as a huge fan of the game and and as a player. And I know that Chris Terhoon put a ton of work into making sure that it was really like honoring that while um, really translating that to the screen and making sure that each moment really played as a great moment of television and to tell the story in each little section. It was a really difficult task, I know, from just talking to him. And I wish he was here to talk more about it for himself. But just making sure that, like, as, and as Michael said, that, yeah, that we're really just doing those sounds justice while also telling the story of Joel and Ellie in that museum and those clickers and, and, uh, and later on, you know. Yeah, that scene in particular is about three people being as quiet as they can, you know, Joel, Ellie, and Tess, and knowing that if they make one vibration or sound or footstep, which they do, <laughs> it'll draw the attention of something not so great. You know, it'll come get them. And so I like the difference between these sounds that the clickers are making and the quiet. I think it's just, it's, it's great. <laughs> So uh, speaking about that scene, uh, Frank Martin wrote to us from San Francisco, when other productions would have put in emotional music, right. you guys were brave enough to keep silence. But silence is never actually silent. No, no. So do you want to talk about how you build silence without being silent? Well, in that museum, because, you know, it, it's sort of been bombarded a bit. There's lots of holes in the walls and the ceiling. And you see the ceiling collapse just before the clicker scene. So this guy here, Chris, you know, they the environments they created with winds and echo. And it just, it sounded very real or maybe cinematic real. Just hearing a little bit of air and the wind coming to the walls and drips, uh, those are not loud sounds, but they can be frightening, especially if you're trying to be quiet. Yeah, along those lines, one of the things that was really challenging, I think, throughout the show in general, but especially in that episode that you're talking about, episode two, um, is making sure that each of the buildings felt really separate and different as they went from abandoned building to abandoned building. And that building, the museum, we really designed as a as an old, creaky, wooden New England building, you know, something that could have been around from, you know, the 1700s, 1800s. And so that quiet is, it's, but it's been, it's been left, you know, it's been abandoned. It's been just not taken care of. It's, um, so we really built in the quiet with tons of little wood creaks and, and dust. And as they try and move along, like to avoid the clickers in that section, just making sure that every little section and every little sound really played to ground it and to show that it's quiet. You know, you don't really hear 
tiny scuffs or tiny little pieces of glass debris or even like a very small wood creek unless everything else around it is really quiet. Um, if, you know, if there's guns or something, you're not going to hear somebody step on a floor. But if if they're really creeping, it, there was a lot of attention to detail to make sure that the the space and the and like the the quietness was built in with these tiny little sounds um, and just lots and lots of little details to try and bring that to life. And we have to give credit to our two terrific recording mixers, Mark Fisherman and Kevin Roach. They, you know, they just knocked it out of the park in every episode I felt, but especially in those scenes with the clickers where they had to juxtapose the quiet with the creatures and just the, the placement around the room is where they're coming from because, you know, these clickers can't see you, but they can hear you as if you were Joel or Tess or Ellie, they're coming at you from all directions and you never know where you're going to hear something, you know, something scary. Yeah, in the same way that we really put a lot of attention on the sound editorial and design side of small sounds, they put so much beautiful attention into dynamics and into space and to making sure that everything was kind of placed at the right distance and felt like you were in these real rooms, you know. So it's, uh, as Michael said, huge amounts of credit to them. Chris, you said that you were a big fan of the game. Michael, before we started recording, you had mentioned that you had not played the game. How did you come to get on this project? 20 years ago, I had worked on a couple of the Scary Movie parodies, you know, Scary Movie 2. And then I got hired on Scary Movie 3, which was directed by David Zucker. And I had to go to Paramus, New Jersey for a preview. We all went to like Fuddruckers or some hamburger place before the preview. And I met this pretty smart gentleman who was sitting next to me. uh, And it was Craig Mazin. He had written Scary Movie 3. And we kind of hit it off. And, you know, we had a disastrous preview that night. And a lot of us, I can't remember whether Craig was there or not, but we were staying at the Soho Grand and got particularly hammered <laughs> because because the preview had not gone well. The movie ended up getting really good and being a big hit. But um, so anyway, I, I really like Craig. He's very smart. You know, Ivy League educated, just a really smart guy. And I always am interested in smart people. And so uh, then he wrote Scary Movie 4, which I also did. And then he directed a film, another parody called Superhero Movie, which is quite funny. And I did that. I realized that that mix that you know, for being a comedy writer, Craig is really into sound. Even though it's a jokey movie, he doesn't want the sound to be jokey. It's going to, you know, sound like a real great movie. And so it was a lot of work. I remember it was challenging. He wrote another movie, Identity Thief, that Seth Gordon directed, and I did that. So we sort of reconnected a bit there. Then I saw Chernobyl, which they did all the posts in UK. And I thought, wow, Craig's really <laughs> upped his game. And, man, I'd love to work for him again. So basically when I read, I probably in the trades or on, you know, um, deadline that he was doing this thing about the vid- based on a video game called The Last of Us, which you know I'm 66. I did not know really anything about that game. Uh, I'd heard of it, of course. I wrote him a note. I thought you know, I still had his email, even though we hadn't probably talked in 10 years. That guy wrote me back in five minutes and said, "If I do the show in the states, we do post in California. You've got it." That was it. And it happened, you know, and stuff. So, and then I learned more about the game. I have a daughter-in-law who's a big gamer and uh, she, you know, it's her favorite thing. And so we talked, she and I talked about it a lot and stuff. So I feel really blessed that it kind of came my way. I think I did a good job, but it was, you know, I, I feel really blessed. <laughs> and Chris, how did you get on the project? Um, I was a huge, huge fan of the game. You know, I was I, well, I remember playing those games and I was just blown away by not only the sound, but also just the storytelling of those characters and that world and what they did in, in a game. And when uh, I found out they were doing it as a TV, she was like, oh my God, I need to do this, you know? And so I basically found out that Michael was doing the show. I got recommended by some some really good friends who put me forward and I spoke with Michael and, 
and we started working ever since. It was really awesome. So you hadn't worked together before this? No, no. But I, you know, I, he had high recommendations, and I also admired his persistence. You know, <laughs> if I give any advice to anybody young, don't be obnoxious, but you know. Get in there and say, I really want to do this show, and here's why and why. I want to do this film, and this is why and why. And this is why I want to work with you because of this and this and this. So he was very good at that. You know, I thought, well, if anybody is that persistent and loves something that much, they're going to put that much energy and love into the, the work. So, yeah, that's where we went. So speaking of it being a game and bringing the idea of the game to the screen— I think it's episode four. There's a scene. It's a massive scene. The uh, infected are attacking them outside of Kansas City. Our main character, Joel, is on the second floor of a house and taking out infecteds as they're attacking Ellie. That scene is a pretty good parallel for a scene that's in the game as well. Okay. Do you want to talk about uh, maybe how the differences between the game and the way you approached it for the screen? Chris, do you want to tackle that first maybe? Sure. One of the things as a player in the game is that you're the one shooting that gun. It needs to be tactile and you need to feel the danger of the other people around you, but you need to feel it's you who's doing that action. And so the gunshot is very important, but you also need to hear that gun 500 times in 20 minutes or an hour or however long you're going to be using that gun in the game. Each gunshot individually, I feel, and as a game, as a player, it's so visceral. But if you made that as big and crazy and intense as you possibly could in a game, it would probably blow out your speakers, but also just become a little bit obnoxious as you hear just this massive sound over like a thousand times. So I really talk about honoring an intent for the for the gameplay. And so the idea of like as a player that this sniper is so intense is we really wanted to make that sniper as physically intense as possible, um, both when they're getting shot at and when Joel is using it um, and just making it punchy and big and impactful and feeling every single bullet and every single shot. And so that was the, the big thing that we really focused on was like we needed to make this feel like intense, you know, and uh, as a viewer, um, I think that because – like the linear media, you hear that moment once as opposed to the 500 times as a player. And so we can really push it even further and, and harder and bigger than I think any game possibly could without um, blowing out their, their players, you know. So that, that was the big direction there was we just wanted to make that feel like just massive um, and, and visceral, you know. See, as of somebody who didn't play the game, I saw it as a dramatic sequence where Joel is really protecting somebody he's sort of falling in love with, you know, um, who he fought earlier on the earlier episodes. So he's a lone man sitting, you know, I don't know how far away he is, but he's in a house down the block. He's going to shoot as sharp as he can because he's got to protect Ellie. Even just his facial expressions, doesn't have any dialogue there, are great. He's so determined, and that's what I love. And I think the sound of the guns and the way he fires shows his determination. Yeah, I think also really we're fortunate. The storytelling and the edit and how it was directed and how it was shot really allowed for us to to tell that story of like of Joel protecting Ellie as, as much as he can. So, you know, we were able to I feel like push sound in, in different directions and and make things like hyper real or intense and then pull back and get that detail just based off of how well this was made from the from all the other filmmakers. Yeah, I think also because Ellie figures out quite quickly what Joel is doing as she's going through all the crowd. And so then she becomes a protector of Sam. And it's, I just, I like all that stuff. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I think that the best part about the, the whole series too is, I think you touched on it earlier, is obviously we're talking about the infected because it's such an exciting sequence. But the, the core of it is those characters and that story and the, their connection. And I think that's the, what makes this really stand out is beyond anything. It's just 
that story between those those two people in this really abandoned, you know, destroyed world. Part of the job that the sound on this show has to do is tell a lot of kind of the undercurrent of emotions because a lot of times our main character, Joel, he's not the most talkative character <laughs> that's ever been in a series. A lot of his emotions are all just through his facial expressions and sound has to support that. One of the ways it does that is with the ambiences. And the ambiences, I imagine, were not simple because this is a world with no airplanes. No it's cars, a world no with, freeways. Yeah, the freeways are all shut down. It leaves you with winds and your creativity. <laughs> how do you – what else do you do here? Um, do you want to talk about how you approach the well, ambiences? There, I, mean, the, the, I loved it because – we can have these quiet moments and these simple sounds can cut through when a, most products I work on, they can't. There are a lot of scenes where, especially I think when they're on the balcony, I can't remember what episode that is, looking down at the infected. And you, if you saw their hair tussled a bit, then we want to make sure we heard that sound, which a lot of times you can't hear or put in. Uh, all that stuff cut through. I talk, I've talked a few times about Craig Mazin. He's so great because he would ask us after we had this beautiful Foley job done by Randy Wilson and his crew in Toronto. And so let's hear glass under those four particular footsteps. Let's hear a leaf crunch under those four particular footsteps. That's something most filmmakers don't get into, at least in my experience. And with Craig, he just, even though he's this great writer, he's also this great lover of sound and he just wanted all that stuff. And, you know, it's a lot of work for us to, oh, now we've got to go more footsteps with glass. But once we figured out his MO, it was, you know, brought us a lot of joy to make that happen because you'd actually heard it. As you said, all that stuff brought a lot of emotion and, and detail and, and it told you a lot about the world. Um, I mean, you were talking about winds. We spent a lot of time with winds. And as Michael said, we cut every single hair gust. And every time you see something like blow, we made sure that we heard it because those quiet moments allowed us to build in a lot of detail and emotion. You know, abandoned buildings, yeah, everything. Same, yeah. yeah, all those abandoned buildings creaked and they moaned and they rattled and every single thing had to feel dusty. So very, very early on, before I even, before I, I think we had this frame of picture, I went out with uh, two amazing recordists, Kai Paquin and Christopher Flieger, um, out into the desert. And we recorded abandoned buildings and we recorded junk and trash and, and you know, old barns and, and just metals just abandoned scrap metal and sheet metal that had been left around and these amazing textures that we were able to then later on use as uh, the basis for a lot of our spaces to to try and sell all this quiet and the, and the emotion of these scenes too. You know, like making sure that our insects and, and our birds were all right um, and real. And we, we there's a lot of attention put in to make sure that if you're in Boston, you know, and it's one of the difficult things is a lot of these episodes – don't have reoccurring locations. You know, every single location is different in each episode and the time periods are different, whether that's, you know, fall into the, a nice spring or into a summer or into the deep, deep winter and snow. Um, so we just really try to make sure like we're in, we're in New England in the fall. What does that sound like? You know, what does Texas in the summer or the spring sound like? What does the snow sound like when it's in the dead of winter up in Colorado? Um, just putting that a lot of attention into that detail to try and bring that world and the emotion for this for those scenes. You know, I'm a Southern California boy, so I don't know from snow very much. I mean, obviously, I've been to snow. But I loved the cold sounds we came up with and these guys, Chris and the gang, came up with just because I felt the temperature drop even though it was all sonic. I don't know if snow really makes a sound when it falls, but it does in our show, and I believe it. Yeah, I was really proud of 
all the backgrounds. And um, like Chris said, we were in a different location every week. So it wasn't like the Seven Kingdoms where you go back and forth. Or, you know, we just we had to come up with something new, but it had to sound desolate every time. And it's hard to come up with a different desolation sound every week. But I think we pretty much nailed it. We'll see what season two does. But, you know, I think we're yeah, so. Um, there's a recurring motif maybe where Joel, our main character, has a panic attack. Visually, all he's doing is kind of leaning against a pole. The whole idea of the panic attack is all told through sound. Everything goes internal all of a sudden. Outside of the panic attacks, there's an external world. You know, I would love to take credit for all that, but, <laughs> but I think me that, too. But I think it all comes from Craig. Like that was that was shaped really early from when we saw like and how he was designing those scenes. Craig Mazin, the showrunner, really knew ahead of time that that's how those were going to be played. That came to us in a shape we're able to just enhance and and play with, but all those ideas were presented ahead of time. The tracks we got from the picture editing crew were pretty phenomenal. And, you know, we had an order to stick to them and we did, but it was, they were a great guide. You know, we just expanded on them and, okay, this is what they did here. What can we do to give the same vibe, but just maybe up up our game a little bit. So I really give credit to the picture editors and their tracks were beautiful. Another thing that stuck out to me, give a little background, uh, we're recording the day after the MPSC Golden Reel Awards. Last night I was at the awards and I talked to your Foley team and they told me that they were super happy with how loud the Foley played. Uh, Maybe not loud, but how clear. Yeah clear the Foley played. Uh, was that a plan right away or did, did that evolve as the show went on? You know, Randy Wilson, like I said, his team in Toronto did all the Foley and they're terrific. I try to use them as often as I can because they just just do such detailed, beautiful work no matter what your budget is. <laughs> They've really helped me out on smaller budget films. And the mixer, uh, Kevin Roche, our uh, effects mixer, constantly said, who are these guys? This is some of the best Foley I've ever had. And I did Under the Banner of Heaven before this and I got the same thing from the mixer. It was like, I love this Foley. It's just so detailed. And when it's good, you want to use it. And you can use it. It's not intrusive. Uh, it's not over the top. It doesn't sound fake. Randy and his team just really nailed it. I even Craig Mazin liked the Foley. You know, we, he was commenting on how good it was. So, it, you know. Directors never comment no, on Foley. No, but it was, it was so beautiful. <laughs> and it really worked with the sound effects, you know. And they had the same issue. You know, they couldn't be too big. It was a quiet world for them as well. And they also love the project. I think if you love the project, you're going to do your best work. You know? So and I think everybody involved that this show's pretty great. So let's you know, really step it up. I think it's also like we, we really needed the Foley for a lot of this. Like it, there's, as you're talking about the quiet and the ambiences and, you know, we can talk about the reality of the sound effects of, of like cutting floor creaks to build space and things like that. But the foundation for getting those characters tied to the screen and like really – attach them into the world is the Foley. It's the Foley and the dialogue, right? And so between the the two of those, like we really needed to play the Foley pretty forward and, and present because that's what's bringing and telling the story. And I think really that was the important thing. It's like whatever was telling the story in those moments is the stuff that we were playing. And since there's so much quiet, a lot of it is ambiences, realistic, grounded, detailed sound effects and Foley along with the, with the very beautiful, clear dialogue that Michael was able to present. There's lots of quiet moments, there are also lots of loud moments. Sure. And one of the early ones is the plane crash in episode one. I was watching the show and uh, I was obviously enjoying it. But when that plane crash happened, I like sat forward and was like, oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> it gets a good response. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about how you built that? Like what? It, it's something special. So that one I actually can take. <laughs> OK, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I put a lot of time into that. It was, it was the first massive, massive moment. And um 
it, I think it really turns the show. You know, that's a yeah. that's a moment of of real. There's been so much tension ahead of that with infected grandmother that was attacking Joel's daughter, and you know them trying to escape from their their house and escape this world that's starting to become infected. And like that, to me, is a moment of like impact that then turns into and it releases the tension. And so it needed to be like really impactful. And um, I spent a lot of time really making sure that it was both feeling like the, the tension was rising with the with the plane, but also like that it was falling. So I was doing both rises and falls at the same time to try and across different frequencies to try and make sure that the audience was kind of pulled. With the, and, like jet engines, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the engines was real, like the high end, the 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 high like whiny parts were all rising into into big like tension risers and then like having an engine that was low and bassy and things like that were all falling almost like like a guttural bass dive or a growl or something like that until that impact happened. It's great because that plane is not that close to us. It's kind yeah. of in the background, really. But we still had to feel it because you still got all these people screaming and yelling and running. And they're in a truck. Um, I, th- I think Craig and, you know, Neil putting that wheel breaking off the plane coming into the truck at the very end before we go to black really helped – you know, it was a great punctuation. If it had just been the plane crash, it would have been wonderful. But that wheel coming at you, then silence, was f- fantastic, I think. Yeah, and, it ends it. Yeah, and I love how we come back from the black with just this, some little we, – we had to make sure that cr- a little bit of time had passed by so the crowd wasn't as crazy. You just hear a scream here, a scream there. You hear another transformer explode here or there. I love the space of the sound and that whole first episode because things are happening when the chaos in the world is sort of ending – Far away, but we still have to feel it. And if if you were really there, you'd say, well, what was that? You know, you wouldn't know exactly what that is. I don't really know what a transformer sounds like. I've never had heard one blow up in my life. But it's just great that something is happening in the distance and there's a car alarm going off here. Um, all those little details, I, at least I felt, sounded very real if that was a world, world we were living in. The plane crash moment is also plot-wise. It takes us from uh, the small town we're in to, oh, planes are falling out of the sky. This is global. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it really opens up the story as well. It's a really cool moment that I literally sat up when it happened. Oh, that's awesome. It was amazing. I really <laughs> love that. Um, the the other thing that I wanted to talk about is the group, like the the crowd. Episode one, there's giant crowd. Yeah. And then... Uh, the panic. I, and... I, I have to be honest, we're recording this before the last episodes have aired. So I don't know how the show ends yet. <laughs> and I'm jealous that you do. Um, for the shows that I've seen, we don't get crowds like that. So uh, do you want to talk about how you built that panic in the crowd? Well, I use this really terrific loop group, uh, Mark Sussman and uh, Patty Connolly, Loop Squad. They... They're really good. They hire really good actors. And I like to layer things. And I like to shoot small groups. I don't like to shoot. If I have 12 actors, I don't go have them all go at once. I'll do three, three, four, and four. It just, and I'll just rather do more passes. It gives me more control. And so, and I like to do a lot of buys because I think those sell individual buys and that kind of scene. So, you know, I've got my beds and I've got my buys and I've got my free and clear callouts. I mean, I know anybody who does ADR, this is sort of standard, but I really like building the group because then you can have as much or as little as you want. As actors, they background actors, they put in their best work because they really liked the project and they took time. And Mark and Patty are really good as far as, um, you know, watching the show and thinking about it. They don't just show up. They think, well, who would be good for this? Who would be good for that guy? How can we build this? And they'll even tell me, let's not do it the way you'd normally do it. Let's do it this way for this one. And, you know, I love their advice. So um, it really was just building. And, again, I'm amazed how much loop group you hear on the show. And there are on a ton of scenes with crowds in the whole, in the whole series, but you do hear quite a bit. 
Yeah, and like all that stuff was really like built the human element into all the chaos that we were doing, you know, and it really tied together. And once again, big credits to the mixers um, for being able to put everything and get them to feel like they're individual events. But those those loop group actors really built in the the fear and the screams and the and the callouts and the and the the panic while we were building glass and guns and and crashes and you know everything else around it to make it feel like like this town is collapsing as these people become infected and their brains become out of their control as they become just real instruments of aggression and sonically i get the vibe when you're watching it it's happening so fast I and mean, this all happens in one day on a friday afternoon into the evening and anybody who's lived through a pandemic like all of us it happened pretty fast you know, we were hearing about this COVID thing, and a week later, we were all being sent home from work. My daughter was being sent home from her senior year in high school. I wanted the sound to feel that way, like it wasn't a slow process. It really just got going. And what about loop group for the infected? The group infected, we kind of struggled with a bit because we didn't want it to sound corny. There's this, and I guess it's episode two, uh, where they're all, you know, sort of laying on the ground and they're awakened. Um, we, we didn't want to sound monster and, we, you know, we tried to avoid that. So we had some of that stuff, I'll be honest with you at first, and it just didn't fly with Craig. And so it was a real good learning process. I mean, there were days where I was tearing my hair out. How are we going to nail this sound? Because he's not happy, and if he's not happy, I'm not happy, and I'm going to hang myself. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so, so there are um, – but we got there, and that's what was so great about Craig. He was – yeah, he got frustrated sometimes, but he was so patient with us because he knew we would get there sonically. He knew we'd eventually get there. He really wanted to get it right, and we really wanted to get it right um, because the game got it right, you know, and the, and these characters got it right, and everybody really just spent the time and pushed as hard as they can and put as much effort into they as they could to make sure that we really did this story and these characters justice, you know. I think it was, like, true for anything, whether that was the infected or the plane crash or the ambiences. It's It was really about making sure we're honoring this story. So, Michael, I looked at your IMDb credit list. Mm-hmm. You don't have a lot in this genre. Well, I did work on Super Mario Brothers with uh, Bob oh, well, Hoskins. Uh, and video games. Yeah, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny because every article I read before the show came out about, like, you know, can this show break the video game curse, mentioned Super Mario Brothers. I thought, oh, my God, I worked on that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I also worked on Street Fighter with Van Damme. You know? oh. <laughs> so. It is an interesting idea, though, because video games to films or series – has a reputation of right, not right, being right, a successful right. thing. And this show is, I think it's something like 98% on Rotten yeah, Tomatoes. It's like it's, popular. this is, the no one's pretty talking amazing. about. Yeah, I've the, been doing this for a long time. I think I've worked on like 130 films and I don't think I've ever had this kind of response where people that I went to high school with many, many, many years ago are contacting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at a restaurant the about, I guess the second episode had probably aired with my brother here in West Hollywood and, uh, my brother said, hey, they're talking about your show in the booth next to us, you know, and then sure enough, four seconds later in the next booth. Oh, they're talking about your show in that booth. You know, it's like everyone was talking about it and they still do. Did you feel a pressure, though, to be like the one that <laughs> ma- made it work? No, be no, I didn't see that. I saw it as this is a great project, whether it was based on a video game or not based on a video game. And we just got to make it sound as damn good as it can, you know, so. And as the pictures started arriving and you saw that you had to live up to something. Right, right. Did you feel pressure well, I had there? Read the, I had read most – I think I read all the – I read all the scripts. I read most of the scripts. And I got to admit, Craig's scripts have sound notes in them. They're walking on oh, leaves, great. the crunch of leaves and this and that. And it just really helped you feel it when you were reading it. So when I saw these beautiful – productions come my way and I could actually see them on the screen, I wasn't surprised. I thought, okay, this is just as good as the script. Obviously better, but it made you want to work harder. (laughs) 
So originally Chris Terhune was supposed to be with us today, right. but he couldn't be. So he was, uh, I, from what I understand, mostly in charge of the sounds of the infected. Is that correct? Yes. So he can't answer this question, but I'm wondering if maybe you guys can tackle this a little bit. Other than the, you mentioned the, that the original voice actors right, right, brought right. back in, what what else did you was used to fill those out, or was anything well, used know, to fill those out? I know out? you had done some work. I mean, I know it was a lot of experimenting for him, um, mainly because there's these sounds from the game that sound amazing, similar to what we talked about with the sniper. Um, but they're designed for a game where as a player, you're supposed to understand something and supposed to communicate for how you're supposed to act as opposed to like selling the moment, you know? Um, and I think that there was a lot of uh, difficulty there in terms of just really making sure that it feels like it's the game, but isn't the game, you know? Because the game doesn't do all of the same actions in terms of how close something is to the screen or in terms of every single little moment, you know, they, in film, they can really play those moments however they want and they can act them out and they can do different variations while a game is more scripted in terms of how it's supposed to design a, like a player to act. So I think there was a lot of effort put into really making sure that it was as close as possible while being really visceral. It's hard to tell the difference, but like I know he put a ton of effort into that. And the other thing that was really difficult were the it wasn't the clickers it wasn't you know the bloater is obviously oh, we haven't even math. talked about the bloaters <laughs> yeah the oh bloater is awesome and like I think that's similar to the clickers in terms of trying to get it to be as close to the game but there's everyday regular sick infected that aren't quite clickers yet and in the game they have stages of like runners and stalkers and other and things that are like have unique signatures but in this case partly I think because the fungus is a little different than in the game which was spores and now it's these fibrous networks that are in their lungs and in their stuff. Like, I know there was a ton of effort that he put into or a lot of hard work and a lot of experimentation to try and make sure that, as Michael had said previously, that these people sounded sick and, like, their lungs are filled with this fungus and that they're they're breathing and emoting in a way that, like, felt natural but also felt visceral and, like, as an audience member was would put you on edge. And I, I don't know if this is a secret or not, but I'm telling you anyway. Uh, <laughs> Craig Mazin did a lot of the creature voices too. Yeah. So because he had so much fun with it, we always wanted him to do his pass, and we used a lot of it. You know, I mean, Nan is mostly Craig. You know, <laughs> the infected grandma in episode one. So um, a lot of times, Craig Mazin would go to Chris's little studio at Warner Brothers, and they play around and they do stuff. And that was what was really fun. We really got to play around on the show a lot. You know, so we were given that luxury. Yeah, it was all about the performance for those people, yeah. for those characters. That's pretty amazing to have, like, the director, creator, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. taking part in the ADR. Oh, he, oh he's, a, he's all through this thing, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's something special. So he obviously cared about the sound a lot. Yeah, yeah. And and we liked using him whenever we could. And when, and it wasn't if what if it wasn't working, we wouldn't. And he knew that too. You know. So. Obviously, this show had a large crew. It wasn't just you two. Uh, do you want to give some shout outs? Well, to we were the who... most important. But uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, just kidding. just kidding. Of course, I had two dialogue editors. Joe Schiff cut the majority of the show, and then Thomas Boykin came in and helped us. Um, and then we had a big effects crew, depending on which episodes we were working on. And so, big shout outs to Mitch Lesner, Jacob Flack. Uh, Matt Yoakum and Odin Benitez, who all just did phenomenal work on on the entire show. And then, of course, our Chris Terhoon, who I wish we could have here, and our re-recording mixers, Kevin Roach and and Mark Fishman. Yeah, great stuff. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Uh, As I mentioned, the show is what everybody's talking about, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's a very high-quality show that pulls you in. And where other, uh, I know I'm not supposed to use the zombie word, but where other films <laughs> of this type of genre, there's a scene where, when they're in Kansas City, where they talk about going into the tunnels. 
every other project that's ever been made, when they go into the tunnels, they're gonna get attacked. In this series, they go into the tunnels and find something magical and beautiful down there that ends up being like a really big character driver. I was not expecting that, and it really separates it from other projects. And uh, thank you for all your oh, hard great, work great, on great. it. It's great talking to you today. Great talking to you too, and I think it's just, we're just both so fortunate to have worked on something. Yeah, really blessed, so thank you. We're actually in person. We normally do these episodes for Tonebenders over uh, digital means virtually, so it's great to be here in person at Formosa Group, uh, stage two in their Hollywood facilities. A big thanks to uh, Erica, Jack, and Pat for helping set this up and doing the recording. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon on your next project, hopefully. Great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.